1 Kings 18 is where we're heading, at least for a couple weeks. So we're done with uh, Romans 8, transitioning a little bit. Um, and so you know, this morning we're pretty much just going to cover some basics that surround this particular story before actually getting into the plot um, itself. Uh, so 1 Kings chapter uh, 18. Uh, I'll be straight with you this morning, pastorally. Um, I feel conflicted. Um, conflicted, and I've just been like, Lord, what do you want this morning? What do you want? Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want from where we were just at to leave you. Um, the tender compassion of the Lord is a real thing. He loves us more than you know. And because he loves us more than we know, he can be very straight and forward with us. He can point out the things that aren't straight in our lives. And he has every right to come after us. And just know, he comes after us in love. He comes after us not because he obligates us to repentance. He comes after us because he wants every last shred of us. He wants all of you. He loves you that much. He's not looking to bombard you with a uh, kind of a, um, an empty life. He, he's not going after that. He's not going after just that cold religious obligation, more burdened by, oh man, a God who just expects more out of me than I have within me. It's not the God who we serve. He's God who loves us, will come after us in all his fury <laughs> to gain every last bit of us so that it might be said of us, in Christ we have life and life abundantly. He's jealous for that for you. So uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to walk that out with you in relationship to this story today and next week. Um, but I want to begin by just writing down a, kind of the burden for our church. I know the last, like Romans 8, that wasn't like, I know, you probably felt the, a difference in tenor to uh, James and I and our hearts for us as a congregation. Um, and so I, I, I want to just throw my burden before you um, as it relates to 1 Kings 18. Um, and, and here's, do, I, I just, I pray that God would give you ears to hear and hearts to receive. Um, if you right now are erring on religiosity, you'll feel like this is a burden to like, oh man, he's, he's putting more on us. <laughs> um, or you might get real critical because you want to dodge what's coming at you. <laughs> Um, just know that this is the burden that I'm placing before you, the truths from this particular chapter, this storyline here. Again, God is after all of you because he wants to shape in you life and life abundantly. So let me just throw it out there. I'm just going to read what I've written down and then we'll jump into the story. So... 
I've written this, um, James and I, our burden for Mercy Gate Church is that we would have such a hunger for the Lord that there would be nothing he could ask of us that we wouldn't leap in eagerness to do. That we would be even reckless in our abandon to follow after him. Because we know that in our obedience there is something more of Christ in his presence to be encountered and enjoyed. But as I heard from one pastor recently, too many pick and choose a church family based upon what manifestations of the flesh are acceptable. It's more about what can I get away with. It's more about how I won't be challenged. It's more about how I remain quiet and hidden with my sin, my comforts, holding on to my dreams, rather than truly coming to know him who is life and life abundant. The Christian life isn't always thinking what can I get away with? Rather, it's what can I give myself away to? Because I have found that Jesus is life and life abundant. And by the way, that abundant life is not, it's not equal to a desire for a desire of God, nor is it equal to a want for a want of God. A lot of Christians grow no more than that. A desire for a desire, a want for a want of God. They eventually believe there isn't more than that. But if that's the Christian life, Jesus is a liar. Scripture is merely a carrot that God dangles out before us, promises that he just merely torments us with. This cannot be so. If we seek him, Scripture says, with all of our hearts, we will find him. If we die to ourselves, John 14, he will manifest himself to us. If we search for that pearl of great price and spend all that we are to attain it, we will come to find it. We will come to know it. Oh, that we as a church would have such a hunger for the Lord that there is nothing he could ask of us that we wouldn't leap with eagerness to do that we would follow him with all that we are and know in greater and greater measure just the life that he provides and life abundant. There it is. <laughs> Pastorally, there's our burden for this church. We want you all to follow Jesus trusting that he is life and life abundant. And by the way, that's the point of 1 Kings 18. It's a call to follow Yahweh. It's a call to follow the Lord who is God. So with that burden in mind, and we'll deal with some of the specifics probably more so next week, uh, I want to just begin by uh, reading through this particular storyline um, and then really just dealing with the characters, not even necessarily dealing with the plot itself. We'll get into that again next week. But I think even just in dealing with the characters itself this morning, we're going to find that there's plenty here for us to be challenged by. We'll hear that, that, that phrase, you know, if the Lord is God, then follow him. Follow him with all that you are, because in him you'll find life and life abundant. So 1 Kings 18, verse 20. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. 
So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now you, you may be wondering, okay, where, okay, eh, who in the world is this Ahab? We'll get into the specifics of that in a minute. Okay, God's people are being gathered. They're being gathered. What is going on here? Immediately, just by reading the first verse there, you're like, where does this fall in the storyline of Scripture? And yet you have to kind of grasp exactly what's happening here to understand how it all applies to us. So let me just jump out away from the reading of the text and just explain the storyline of Scripture. In the storyline of Scripture, I, I draw this out for my kids like all the time. In the beginning, God creates all things. In the end, he restores all things. We have Adam and Eve, you know, the, the, the fall takes place, and from Adam you have Abraham, and God promises a seed, one, a Messiah who's going to come and make all things new. Moses, God makes promises to Moses saying, yep, uh, yes, that seed, that Messiah is coming, and he establishes God's people as his nation. Then it's the time of the judges, and it's the time, if you've ever read the book of Ruth, you, you know, that's the time of the judges. And so you have a number of judges, and it seems like God's people can never kind of stay faithful to the Lord. And then, well, then they want kings, and so this is the time of the kings. And so you have Saul, and you have David, and then you have Solomon. And then after Solomon, DK, you have a divided kingdom. Right? You have, after Solomon, when things seem so great, well, and put together, God's people now are splintered, they are divided, which actually compromises the very promises that God gave at the beginning that a Messiah would come through his people. And so in this divided kingdom, you have Israel to the north, you have Judah to the south, and you have all these kings throughout time that are over those two areas. And Ahab then is part of the kings over northern Israel. So where this storyline falls in 1 Kings 18 is at the time of the divided kingdoms. You eventually then find that these divided kingdoms, Israel and Judah, are, are attacked and God's people are exiled first to Assyria, then to Babylon. And eventually, years later, they return to the land. And that's where you have the book of like um, Ezra and Nehemiah. They come back to the land. And then there's 400 years of silence. Where has God gone? And suddenly angels show up to shepherds in a field. right? And they make the announcement that the promised one that God gave way back to Adam and it was carried through all the generations has now come. And now, of course, we live on this side of the cross, this time of resolution. Every story, it builds, 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 builds. There's an answer to the problem that originally happened and now there's resolution. And this is what we would refer to as the church age. That's where we are. So this is where the time of the kings, 1 Kings 18, that's kind of where it lands in the storyline. Uh, and this is where we're at today. We're on the side of resolution, awaiting the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus would come back and restore all things. So Ahab, again, he's the king of the north. He's the king in Israel during this time, this time of the divided kingdom. And so, as we'll see, Ahab isn't a good dude. But so Ahab, the king of Israel, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long 
will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They're just stifled in silence. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull from themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it, and I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call in the name of your God, Baal, and I will call on the name of the Lord Yahweh, and, God, and the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. And all the people answers, answered, it is well spoken. They're for this show off, if you will, right? Um, then Elijah sent to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And once again, here's the same kind of phrase, they limped. They limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing himself, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And so what do the prophets do? They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was, once again, no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offerings and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O God, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. And the stones. <laughs> and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, 
and slaughtered them there. This story uh, is, is for middle school boys, one that is so exciting, right? Uh, it, it is one that has kept the attention for many Sunday school teachers. Uh, this, is, this is a good story to roll with uh, to keep the attention of kids. And yet, this story is nothing of entertainment. It's not intended to merely keep the attention of little boys. This is a sobering story that, that man, like... As I've studied through this, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm trembling on the inside even right now. This is, this is a sobering reality. In part, because, um, in part because I know my own fickle heart. I know it. I just know how I need to be told again and again the Lord is God, follow him. The Lord is God, follow him. Right? This is not just good religious entertainment. This is something that our hearts so desperately need. And it's meant to provoke our hearts to follow God, to recklessly pursue life and life abundantly with Yahweh and to quit limping the, around in this life of, of just compromise. There's so much more that he would call you to. Now, every story has a point. And the point is here, follow Yahweh. Come to see who he is and follow him. Fulfill all that he has called you to do and to be about. Live, live this life and life abundantly that he has assigned you to follow y'all. That's the point of the whole story. And yet it's important that even before seeing how that point is clearly seen within the plot itself, it's to see the characters at play within this storyline, which we'll give our attention to in the last few moments together. Uh, for every story, we've got to understand the characters. First, we see, you know, verse 20, Ahab. Who is Ahab? If you flip back just a few pages to 1 Kings chapter 16 uh, and, and look at verse 29, you'll see something of the rundown of who, does, who this guy is. First, we see that um, chapter 16, verse 29, it states this in the uh, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. None of these four-year kind of things. Uh, <laughs> this is a long term. 22 years, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. There's his reputation. What would, your, what would your life be summed up as in one statement? <laughs> For Ahab, this is it. He was more evil than all the other kings before him. There were five or six other kings before him. And, and verse 31, and as it had been a as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. And the first king, he had a, another reputation that was 
uh, one to be reckoned with in terms of the evil that he brought to God's people. And what is being said here, Ahab puts Jeroboam to shame. But as chapter 16, verse 31 continues, and he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and then served Baal and worshipped him. So he marries a Canaanite, Jezebel. Then he goes on to worship Baal, and verse 32, he erects an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah. <laughs> Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. If you didn't catch it the first time that it said, right, it's declared once again. He did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. He marries Jezebel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 declared to God's people, don't marry the Canaanites. Right? It's, it's reiterated again in Deuteronomy 17 specifically for kings. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Well, why? Well, when you begin to explore who Jezebel is, it gives you kind of the idea. Who is Jezebel? You get a little bit of Ahab, he's the king, he's a very evil king, but now Jezebel, we, we know the name. Even to this day, centuries, millennia beyond her own life, she is infamous for being evil herself. Right? Jezebel is the daughter, as that text said, of Ethbaal. Just his name alone announces his allegiance. Baal, right? There it is. Jezebel's dad is the king of the Sidonians, and as such, just by his name, it, it's implied that he is the high priest of Baal worship. So Jezebel is the daughter of the high priest of Baal, is now married to Ahab, more, more likely as a political move than any kind of romantic kind of thing. It's, it's, it was all for governing things and creating peace and whatnot. But by the way, then she comes with, she comes to Israel with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth. We see that in chapter 18, verse 19. So this is one of the reasons why God said, don't, don't intermarry with these, these pagan tribes. Why? Because they're going to bring Baal and Asherah. They're going to bring this false worship into the center of God's people. And so she introduces Baal worship into Israel, um, as well as you can't just hear Baal worship without also hearing all the sexual immorality that goes with that pagan worship. She's bringing that, all that stuff into the center of God's people. And in her zeal for Baal worship, she would go on to then slaughter all of God's prophets in Israel, except for the hundred or so that Obadiah hid in caves. And so we have Ahab, who is an evil king. We have Jezebel, who has come, and she has brought with her all kinds of Baal worship and Ashtoreth worship and all the prophets 
uh, thereby, and she becomes, in that sense, infamous uh, as Jezebel, infamous for evil, so much so that as we saw from our Revelation series, Revelation chapter 2, it describes a deceitful prophetess in the church of Thyatira who is seeking to deceive God's people and promote sexual immorality. It's Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 who declares judgment against her and does so as one who identifies himself as having feet like burnished bronze. In other words, Jesus, this is sobering stuff, and this is why I'm like, oh, Lord, let it land carefully. <laughs> he has feet like burnished bronze, and the whole point of that is, is, a, is a call to the church in Thyatira that if they don't deal with the woman Jezebel in, in all of her influences, well, Jesus is going to come and stamp out that church. He will come with feet like burnished bronze to stomp out that church. It's all in prophetic allusion to the very death that Jezebel faced. Elijah prophesied that she would soon die, and she is pushed out of the window. She falls to her death. She is trampled under the feet of horses. Dogs eat her body, and all that's left are her hands and her feet. There's nothing ultimately to be buried. It's just as Elijah would prophesy. She is not a good lady. <laughs> Why would God, even in Revelation 2, warn us of these things. Warn us of, oh yeah, there was this historical person, Jezebel, but then reference it again in Revelation chapter 2, Church of Thyatira, that these things are happening in the... Why would God warn us of these things? Why would he take an Old Testament story and bring it into play right here, right now? Revelation 2, for the church and for us then in the church age. Because I believe, back to the point... God is so jealous that we would know the life and a life abundant that Jesus has died to secure for us. So that is Ahab and that is Jezebel. But third then, and we're going to kind of wrap things up with Elijah. In chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah is referred to as a Tishbite of Tishbe. All right, that's more or less saying he's a Philadelphian from Philadelphia, right? It's not saying a whole lot other than saying the same thing all over again. It's redundancy, and it's redundancy on purpose. Why? Because uh, Tishbe was like this no-name place, very similar as folks would refer to Nazareth. Remember in Jesus' day, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's just the podunk backwoods country town. Well, the same is true for Elijah. He's a Tishbite from Tishbe. Right? He comes from this place of absolute normalcy, just nothing, nothing good, nothing prominent, nothing interesting about where he comes from. He's just a normal dude, probably grew up on the farm. But it's this man 
whom God utilizes to go before this evil king and this evil queen. And even as 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 and following says, he's going to say, God will not bless you with rain until I speak again. For all the evil that you're doing, I'll, I, will, I will show you life and life abundant. It's not going to rain. You think life and life abundant is found in Baal worship, doing what you want to do, oppressing God's people, etc., etc., etc. Well, I'm going to put a wedge into that. It's not going to rain until I say. I will bring famine upon. I will show just how backward and how powerless Baal actually is. What a courageous man. This means, you know, saying these kind of things to this kind of king and queen, this means that he's laying his very life on the line. But as courageous as some of these things might be, as we see in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, these things pale in comparison to what the rest of Scripture will say of Elijah. For instance, at the end of Malachi, at the end of Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 through 6, it, it states this. You got it up on the screen. Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah. Elijah will come again before the awesome and great day of the Lord, and he will return the hearts of the fathers to their sons and the sons to their fathers. Elijah is coming again? It's like, wait, 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 are we talking, you know, uh, whatever, Christian reincarnation or something? Like, what? how in the world is Elijah showing back up on the scenes? This one, well, he was taken up in a chair. Okay, maybe maybe God's just going to send him down. Maybe it's not going to be reincarnate. Maybe it's actually Elijah going to come, literally speaking. Well, if you move forward into the life of Jesus, Jesus has an interesting interaction with his disciples. Matthew chapter 17, the disciples will ask Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, why, why was it said that Elijah's going to come again? And, and Jesus answers his disciples, well, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of who? John the Baptist. All right, so not Elijah himself isn't necessarily coming again, but one who carries something of the mantle of Elijah, one who has a similar ministry to that of Elijah. And by the way, this was familiar ways in which um, Scripture speaks, even as it relates to Moses. Moses is going to come again. Moses is going to come again, right? And not necessarily Moses himself, but it's clear that someone who carries a similar ministry to that of Moses will come again. So this is normal language within Scripture, not to refer to some sort of Christian reincarnation, but something of impartation, something of seeing that same courageous ministry of Elijah now brought back to the centerpiece of what God is doing. So it's interesting. Elijah has come, Jesus says. He has come in John the Baptist. Right? Just as Elijah would stand before the king and queen and actually rebuke them for their Baal worship and say stuff like, hey, it's not going to rain until you get things right and I say the word. 
John the Baptist will confront Herod for his sexual immorality and his wrongdoing, and it will cost him his head. The same kind of courageous ministry to go before kings and cultures and call out their sin. This is the kind of ministry, Elijah ministry, that we're speaking of. Jesus then, there's an Elijah that's coming again. And he's going to do what? He's going to restore all things. Who's the one who restores all things? <laughs> that's Jesus. Jesus is more or less saying, hey, Elijah's coming again. By the way, ah, that's me. He's come, John the Baptist. He is coming, Jesus. But there's something else here. Because not only do we hear of Elijah coming again, but we also then will, it'll be referenced in Revelation chapter 11. We've gone over this, remember, through our Revelation series. Revelation chapter 11 states this. And remember, this is apocalyptic imagery. This is a genre that is all about, like, dreams. So you're going to see the symbols. You should expect the symbols and the images to, to mean something. And so in Revelation 11, it states this. There are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And listen, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power then to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who does that sound like? That no rain would fall? It's a reference to Elijah, isn't it? That fire would fall at their word, as it does in 1 Kings 18. That rain is stopped, as it does in 1 Kings 17. It's the ministry of Elijah that is coming again in Revelation 11. And this witness is referred to as an olive tree and a lampstand. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, who are the lampstands? What are the lampstands? Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, just as things are getting kicked off in the book of Revelation, the lampstands are the churches. Catch where all this is going. Jesus has said to his disciples, Elijah has already come. This ministry, this not only just ministry, but anointing. This Holy Spirit-empowered ministry has already come in John the Baptist as he confronted, oh, he confronted the kings and the culture. But what else did he also do, Malachi 4? He called people to repentance so that families who would be divided would, would find healing in the coming Messiah. Jesus then would say, oh, I'm coming to restore all things, where yes, once again, he's going to confront the Babylon of the day, the kings and the cultures of the day, and he, there's going to be a final reconciliation of all things. But even here and now, the lampstand, the witness is at play. The church takes up the mantle of Elijah. The church, in other words, is to act as something of a conscience for our culture. 
when our culture gives way to all the mess, and we'll see in particular that mess as it relates to Baal worship and astral worship, the condition of man hasn't changed over the years, by the way. But what the church does is the church is called, is called to be a conscience to the culture, but also then, Malachi 4, to see families reconciled. To see the hearts of fathers turn towards their sons and sons then turn towards their fathers. That it's the church now that has this calling upon them. Now again, in Revelation, some interpret that to be literal. There's actually an Elijah that's going to come. And some think this is a, a, a day further down the road. I get that I'm using a particular interpretation of Revelation. But nonetheless, if it's ministry to be soon done by the church, it's nonetheless something that should be taking in part now, here and now. We are called as God's people to care, to be something of a conscience to our culture. And then to see reconciliation take place between fathers and sons and sons and fathers. To see something of the healing of family units. And that being the case in Jesus. We point them to Yahweh. Elijah is dealing with, you know, calling people to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, right? To Yahweh, Jesus will come say, I am am that I am, right? John chapter 8. He is Yahweh. And so what, are, what, what is our ministry? Our ministry is to point people to the reconciliation, the forgiveness that is found in Jesus so that they might know their father in heaven, but also might be reconciled to their children or their fathers on earth. You catch it? The mission and ministry of the church carries something of the, I can say it this way, the anointing and mantle of Elijah. Our mission and ministry as a church, we should know life and life abundantly to the point that what we shine forth to this world, they say there's hope to be found there. There's reconciling grace to be found there. There's something that produces and enables forgiveness that overcomes the bitterness that actually heals the great divides that take place within our families. The church is supposed to be that. We are supposed to be those who shine with life and life abundantly to a world that so desperately needs hope and healing as it relates to all the familial, relational breakdown that we see. The church. Oh, and if I could just take a moment... Folks, when it comes to this imagery found in Revelation 11, these olive trees and these lampstands, it's the same imagery from Zechariah chapter 4. Right? And the whole, oh, it's a beautiful thing. And so it, it's God speaking through the, the prophet Malachi. And, and, and they're, they're now at this stage returning to the land and they're building the temple, right? And as they're building the temple, Malachi chapter 4, there's this imagery that's, that's utilized. Olive trees and lampstands. There it is again, right? But the whole idea is the prophet is saying, yeah, you're building you know, brick and mortar stuff, temples, but there's something more beautiful coming. Olive tree. It actually refers to two olive trees. And the lampstand. 
And the idea from Malachi 4 is that there's these like golden lines going from the olive trees to the lampstands. It's like these golden lines are tapped into the trees so that the oil flows from the trees to the lampstand. Let me just, what does oil represent in God's word? The Holy Spirit. The lampstand represents who? The church. The picture is that of the Holy Spirit providing a constant, consistent, never-ending anointing to the church so that it might fulfill the Elijah ministry. To confront kings and cultures and to see radical healing take place where families have been divided. You catch it? Folks, uh, it was so, even this past week, James and I, a guy walks in. And he walks in and he says, I just lost my son two weeks ago to drug addiction. And he's just distraught. And he says, well, I, I have, what, eight other kids. Big family. Same mom, too. I was like, surprised. Well. But, you know, talking to him, we share the gospel with him. We share the hope of Jesus with him. And I can't, I can't get my, my head out of what I'm studying. And, God, you bring this guy in who's seeking, like, I want the Lord. I can't seem to find him, but I got this big family, and I'm concerned with them as well. And they have struggles and difficulties, and we just experienced death a few weeks ago. And I'm just like, my God can do something with that. <laughs> right? I, I'm seeing who are we, church? We're tapped into the power and presence of the, the Holy Spirit, right? And we get now to share with this guy hope and healing that is not just for him, but is for his family. Oh, you know, and then I'm, I'm just, Lord, this is Cornelius. Cornelius is sitting, if you know the story of Cornelius, Cornelius is sitting right here, like, He's the guy who's seeking the Lord, and as God does amazing things with Peter sending angels and all this kind of stuff, so that Peter actually meets up with Cornelius at the right time and place, and, and Peter starts proclaiming the gospel to him, and all of a sudden, you know, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family, and they begin speaking in tongues and doing all that charismatic stuff that we're so scared of. But it's the stuff. It evidences the power of the Spirit going through Peter and then coming to this family and bringing healing to this family so that the whole family is coming to faith in Jesus and being reconciled to their God and to one another. It's incredible. It's what we live in right now. It's the power that's given to you. But if you don't know life and life abundantly personally, you've got nothing to give away. If you're not tapped into the tree, you don't, you don't have anything. And that's what we're jealous for. We're jealous for a church that says, man, I am so hungry for the oil. I am so hungry for him. Like, it, it, we have to be so careful because we think, we think that doing more things is just going to burden us down. And I'm not calling you to more things, but God, God's like, what are you going to lay down for the sake of connecting into me? I'll just throw it out there and oh, that's a challenge. Um, prayer meetings, DCs, all that kind of stuff. I know. I know life is busy and life is difficult. I feel it. 
And sometimes I even attend as your pastor out of a sense of obligation. <laughs> like, oh, I got to be there, you know. Uh, and you don't. You're not obligated. You're not the pastor. <laughs> You're not obligated. But even such, I always have to get my head and heart straight, is that I'm not going because it's merely obligation. I want to be going because I'm hungry for the things of the Lord, and I see him as worthy, worthy to receive like my, my sacrifice. And, these, and I know the next day my kids are going to be crazy and they're not going to get to bed on time and that's going to just throw a wrench into everything. Look, <laughs> it's more difficult now. It's more difficult. There's going to be more pain and more difficult for me to face beyond even the moment of gathering together as God's people. But as I step into it, I want to say, Jesus, you're so worthy. And how I need, if I could just get a crumb from your table, if I could just get a crumb from what comes from your word, then it's all going to be worth it. I need to eat again. I need to be refreshed in the fact that you are life and life. i got to feed. i got to feed. i got to get there. i, I got to know again that, you're, yes, you're worthy. i got to get it again that you're life and life abundantly. Like, I have to make those sacrifices to get after my Jesus because he's so worthy. He's so good. I need to taste and see again that he is good. Get what I'm saying? I need him. Finally, and this is where I'm just going to kind of close things down. You have Ahab, you have Jezebel, you have Elijah. But then you have these idols, Baal and Ashtoreth, right? Baal, um, Baal was said to be the god of thunder. Is that Thor? Is he, isn't he the God of Thunder? That's what I was thinking. I was like, man, this sounds really familiar as I'm reading through, uh, studying through this stuff. Baal's the God of Thunder, and, and, and uh, as one author writes, that could also be translated this. He is the God of sexual power. He's the God of sexual power. You're like, what? The God of Thunder was the one who could either bring the storm and ruin your crops, and therefore ruin your livestock, therefore ruin your family. He could bring the storm, ruin your life. You couldn't perpetuate life if he brings the storm. You see it? He carried the power over our sexual procreation, as it were, whether that relates to livestock or whether that relates to individual families. He carried sexual power, or he could bring the rain and supply what you needed. For Ashtara, she was, um, she was the god of fertility. And, and she was you know, lower on the scale of important gods in that day. But uh, even the image, you know, archaeologists have recovered idols of Ashtara. And, you know, she has this over-exaggerated womb just this monster womb, you know. And of course, bare-chested. And oftentimes it's these, you know, her little infants that are feeding on her, 
you know, and, and so it's, it's, it's the God of fertility. And so whether it's the God of sexual power or the God of um, fertility, in that day, you didn't have to wonder from village to village, from nation to nation, what they worshipped. You didn't have to wonder, well, there's the, he sets up Baal idols. He sets up astropoles, right? He, he sets these things up so you know this is who we're worshipping around here. But today, it's not so easily seen, is it? It's not idols. It's not astropoles. But nonetheless, this kind of idolatry is alive and well within our culture. While we may not see actual idols, man has not changed nor given up on his pursuit of idolatry through sexual power. Today, people primarily understand their own significance or identity by their sexuality or by their sexual preferences or by their sexual experiences. My own children, they're barely in middle school, and every questionnaire that comes across their desk gets at this particular subject matter. What are you, a male or a female? And what do you actually want to be, a male or a female? And what is your preference? Is it other males or is it other females? <coughs> My kids aren't even in puberty yet. And they're being challenged with these kind of things. Baal is here. Do you see it? We are a sexually insane culture. We live in a day when Baal is no longer out there, but he is in here. He's in people. It's that I will hold the scepter of sexual power in my own hand. I will determine my gender. I will determine my sexual orientation. I will determine my sexual preferences. I will determine what life and life abundant is. I will determine who I sleep with, who I mess with. And, and even if you aren't outright given to sexual immorality, physically speaking, most of us inevitably watch it. What was pornography a few decades ago is just TV mature today. I don't know how many seasons of whatever I've looked at on, on, on Netflix, thinking, oh, this will be awesome. Jump into the first few scenes, and I can't. This is vile. Well, it doesn't affect me. Do you, do you see? I just, I just want to be careful. We can justify watching that stuff, but we can't justify coming to a prayer meeting. I think it needs to be said that simple. I can sit and be entertained by bail, by trash. But I'm not going to make the sacrifices necessary to follow in the way of what Jesus, who Jesus is as life and life abundant. I think, like... Don't, you, you may hear that legalistically. 
I don't know, maybe I'm going to provoke the, the Pharisee in you. Oh, you're just calling me to do more stuff. If that's the way you want to think, religiosity is just stuff. The only reason for the spiritual disciplines, whether that's prayer or fellowship or coming together on Sunday mornings, is so that we pursue the one who is life and life abundant. Jesus is never concerned with burdening you with more religious stuff. But if you've tasted and seen that he's good, man, all those kind of other things. I want to be here. I have to be here. It's like I got, I got to be with one another. I, I got to be praying. I got to be connecting with my God. I got to be fellowshipping. I got to have the grace that only I can find in you as you find grace in him. Baal worship is all too real in our day. And so is Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility. How today we control fertility, even abort it, if it's unwanted. Our culture fights for its rights, and then even says we need to get religion outside of the public square. Let us just carry the sexual power ourselves and determine fertility for ourselves. Ironically, where does this lead us as a culture? It leads to the breakdown, and I'll end here. I'm sorry. It leads to the breakdown of the family unit as God has designed it. 62 million American children have been killed since Roe v. Wade. It is a deafening silence in our culture. 62 million children. And as I mentioned, still from such young ages of our children, you can hear, I heard it this past week, absolute foolishness of sexual talk. You see the endless promiscuity of teens and young adults. You can't escape the sexualized music, the agenda-driven movies that just continually exalt sexual deviance. And then, in our culture, we have endless marketing of sexual power. It is everywhere. And how it all promises the abundant life, but is bone dry empty. It is deteriorating our society. As the family goes, so society goes. You catch it? Baal worship, astral worship, it's in play right now. It's vying for your attention, for your allegiance, for you to just to compromise a little bit because you just need the rest and it's a good show. Just watch it. Maybe skip through it a little bit. It won't affect you. Careful. Careful. You see, this is why Elijah says in verse 21, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. Follow that life and life abundant that's found in him. If Baal, then follow him. You see, it's not a mistake that the mantle of Elijah that is upon the church today is a ministry of reconciliation to see fathers and sons reconciled to God and thereby 
reconciled to one another. But the only way that that will take place is when we personally turn from our sins, turn from our bales, and surrender to Jesus, to Yahweh, who is life and life abundant. Maybe you have that question in mind as I did. Didn't Jesus say that as he would come, he would actually divide families? How is it that he's now saying that the church is, has this ministry of reconciling families? How does that work? Just look at Jesus' own life and ministry. He began his ministry and his family was divided. In fact, they come racing after him because literally they think he's gone crazy. They want to pull him away from the crowds because they think he's gone crazy. His family was divided. But oh, once you get to the book of Acts, who's numbered among the 120? His family. Once divided, now reconciled. Reconciled by faith in Jesus. And they themselves then waiting, awaiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come and empower them to the same ministry. Yes, it will be a ministry that divides families initially, but it is also a ministry that will bring reconciliation to families. That which is divided might be restored. We live in a day of Baal and Ashtoreth. Sexual insanity wreaking havoc on the nuclear family, breaking it apart, and yet, who is to be shining brightly but the church, who confronts the culture, becomes something of a conscience to culture, and comes alongside of even those kids that come on Fridays when we start that up in, in February and say, hey, there's reconciliation to be found. There's restoration to be found in Jesus. Don't mess with this sexualized culture. Become know Jesus, the one whose life and life abundantly. And may not only you find life and life abundantly in him, but the promise stands for your family as well. There are many families to see reconciliation in Christ. But we have a culture to fight against. We have tendencies to fight against. We have a flesh to fight against. But once again, as the church, we carry the mantle of Elijah. A constant, continuous flow of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to be about the work um, of restoring families, just as Elijah was. So let's pray with that. As I pray, I know we've gone late. Um, we'll end here. Is that cool, James? We'll end here. Hang on to some of this this week. Think through your own family. Maybe this will drive you to something of just, um, yeah, maybe, maybe it'll drive you to intercessory prayer for them. Maybe it'll drive you to evaluating your own heart and life as it relates to the sexualized culture that's vying for your uh, attention and allegiance. Um, and may it be that we find our hearts uh, once again, running to him who is life and life abundantly, seeing that he is worthy, he is worthy, he is worthy. So let's pray to that end, and we'll close. God, thank you.
Thank you that um, you give us hard, hard things at times to, to think through and to ponder. Thank you that in bringing us hard things to think through and ponder, you are jealous for our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that um, even now you would grant a unique grace upon us today to see healing brought to lives, Lord, um, and to families. Lord, where there's unforgiveness and bitterness even represented in our own immediate families. Lord, we speak to that and ask that you would bring a grace of forgiveness, a grace of healing, what has been broken, um, even seemingly irreconcilable, uh, what has been broken, Lord, in your grace, it can be restored. We trust that you are the God who can do the impossible. And so uh, we, we ask and pray that you would bring great hope and healing uh, to families, even as they're uh, represented here. Lord, for the kids upstairs, we ask in you unique grace upon them. Lord, protect them from the enemy. Protect them uh, from this sexualized culture. Lord, would you protect them from even um, wondering themselves at such a young age, well, who am I and how do I define myself according to sex and, 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 and who should I take interest in and who should I not? Lord, let it be even as uh, the enemy would want to cause a stimulation of the flesh at such a young age. Lord, we come against that and say, would you grant peace? to our kids. Would you grant them a way in which they can sift through all the junk that is coming their way, that they might be able to stand in the fact that they have been created by Yahweh God, specifically as male or female, to then live out their life holy and acceptable unto you. We pray your protection on each one of them, even as we've prayed oftentimes, uh, Lord, let it be that not one of them is lost. Not one of them is lost. Not one of them is lost, Lord. Not one of them is lost. But that each one of them might come to know, even as Acts chapter 1 and 2 promise, that the coming of the Spirit, the anointing, the refreshment of Christ's presence is for them, it is for them, it is for their children and children's children uh, that the promise of the Holy Spirit isn't reserved just for the, the, the mature and the older. No, the promise of your spirit is even for them. And Lord, by that, I would pray that even our young kids would begin to hear your voice and to prophesy, that they would become channels, as your word is promised, of your own grace and mercy to us, that we would sense in them something of, your holy anointing upon them, flowing through them to both benefit the church, but also then to be a reconciling grace in a world that so desperately needs healing. And Lord, for every matter of infertility, Lord, we pray your incredible grace. Pray your incredible grace on husbands and wives, Lord, What perhaps has been shut up by the enemy, Lord, we pray that you would release a great grace and miracle. We come like Hannah. We don't care about our dignity in front of other people. 
And we just cry out to you and say, Lord, would you bring life? Where there is desire for it, where there is dreams for it, um, where there is good homes for young children to find themselves growing up in. Oh God, let it be. Let it be that you would provide such a miraculous grace to see new life born. And Lord, um, even as it is a big burden on my own heart for the foster care system, so many orphaned children, so many, having no sense of security in this life, having very little sense of even what love is or how it's to function and how easily the enemy can exploit that to bring all his sexualized agenda to bear upon them so as to confuse them. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would raise up many more opportunities to see your grace um, extended to the foster care system. Lord, for the many kids who will be lost even in the next few days, to abortion, Lord, we pray against that evil. Pray against it. We cry, Jesus, raise up laborers. Raise up laborers who are fit to go into that kind of ministry and to speak words of hope and healing to those with unexpected pregnancies. Lord, that the church might, might stand and even for the young youth be able to say, oh, how precious marriage is. How precious manhood and womanhood is. How precious the family is. And how we must maintain it. Not just for our own sake. But ultimately for your glory. Holy Spirit grant us something. Of a refreshment. Of that Elijah anointing. To see fathers turn to their sons. And sons to their fathers. Reconciliation across the board. Oh, how weak we are. But as that lamp, we are connected into the olive tree. <laughs> Constantly empowered to do the work that we're too small to do. <laughs> but let us shine, Lord, by your, by your oil, by your anointing, let us shine mightily. For your glory and for the good of many. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace upon you guys. I know it's a heavy one, and we went plenty late, so thank you for your patience as well. We'll jump into 1 Kings 18, the plot, uh, next week. But just come ready. It's going to be heavy. Just say it. It's going to be heavy. Um, but even in the heaviness, I have prayed, Lord, protect us from that religious stuff. Just like feeling like it's a burden rather than feeling, oh no, it's drawing us in to where there's life and life abundantly. So, grace and peace to all you guys. Probably need to relieve the, the kiddos upstairs. So, bless the, bless the workers up there for all the work they've done. Uh, well, great to see you guys.